0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in the uh, closing verses of chapter 11. You may remember that Jesus has uh, just performed the seventh of the signs that John includes, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this is the reaction that comes. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish." He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. I have never been involved in a plot to commit murder. Hopefully that comes as good news to you. I'm guessing that you have not either. So there is an aspect of our text today that may be extremely difficult for us to comprehend. That being said, all of us do comprehend fear. All of us have at some point in time been temporarily startled by a sudden fright that thankfully passed quickly. I did it unintentionally to my wife Julie the other day when she was drying her hair, and I entered the room, and she was not expecting me because she did not hear my approaching footsteps growing louder and louder as I came up. The stairs to our bedroom. But we are not speaking about that kind of fear. This is a fear that is rooted in the notion of an impending doom, a kind of monumental loss that would forever change your place in the world, or it would so displace the world as you know it as to render it unrecognizable forever. The kind of fear of invasion that motivated young men and women to enlist in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. The, the kind of fear of the tyranny of the Third Reich that motivated Dietrich Bonhoeffer to join a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The kind of fear of Islamic extremism after 9-11 that led nations To band together to seek and destroy any and all foes who were sympathetic to those responsible. Now if a fear of that magnitude were to grip your heart, would you consider murder? The Gospel writer John indicates that it was this kind of fear that stood behind the decision of the Jewish council leaders to reach a resolution to murder Jesus. Many of the Jews who had been witnesses of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead came to the right conclusion, that Jesus was the Messiah, for they decided that only a man sent by God could have accomplished such a feat as raising to life a man who had been dead for four days. We would surmise that the news of this resurrection spread with such speed in the first century as to impress even the most skeptical Twitter or Facebook executive. We would further surmise that the news of this resurrection was not simply passed along and then set aside, but rather, this news occupied the front page of the Jerusalem Gazette for days and days and days. And even then, after it became old news, it was not forgotten. As we will learn in the next chapter, Lazarus became something of a local celebrity, particularly as The Passover drew nearer and pilgrims from all over the known world passed through Bethany on the way to Jerusalem, pausing along the way in an effort to catch a glimpse of the man who had died but then was raised. Now, John includes nothing here as to any of Lazarus' testimony concerning not his near-death experience, but his full-on death experience. But can you imagine the questions that must have been posed to him? What was Sheol like? Was it real? Is that where you were? Did you see God or or were you simply asleep? Was it painful when you passed from life to death? Did, Did you recognize other souls? Did you have any sense of time there? Do you regret returning to life knowing that taxes are due tomorrow? Maybe that's just my question. John does not report any of those specifics for a simple reason. Lazarus is not the story. The story is that Jesus raised a man from the dead who had been in the grave for four days. Jesus must be the Messiah and based upon his work, you may be resurrected to new life like Lazarus by simply having faith in Jesus. But do you know that even, that was not the dominating news. The dominating news was a growing movement to elevate Jesus to the throne. That's what the cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, are soon to be all about. In the wake of Lazarus' resurrection, the Jewish authorities are aware that a grassroots movement is building that favors Jesus. But they believe that the masses are not to be heard, they are to be herded. They are to be managed because they are not well educated. They do not have the necessary skills to discern what is best for the country. The authorities insist, we are not a democracy, we are a theocracy, and only learned men who have been trained in the artful communication with God should be allowed to weigh in on these matters. So when this grassroots movement begins to pick up even more steam than it had before, to such a degree that you... Do not need James Carville or Mary Madeline to tell you that your power and influence are slipping away. The authorities begin to fear. The kind of fear we mentioned earlier. The kind of foreboding fear that signals doom and monumental change that will turn the world as they know it upside down if you do not do something about it. And they verbalized this in their council meeting. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What the Jewish leaders foresaw was the destabilization of the perilous detente that they had fabricated with their Roman occupiers. They saw Babylon all over again. And they did not want to have negative reports from Pontius Pilate getting back to Rome that said, just so you know, we've got a problem here. Because they realized that if such a thing occurred, military forces would overrun their tiny kingdom in a New York minute and they would have no means of stopping them. The Romans would overrun their walls. They would destroy their temple. They would obliterate their country to the degree that it would be unrecognizable and it was this fear of losing this. That caused them to consider murder. Notice that the possibility of Jesus being Messiah does not apparently enter the discussion anywhere, even though they admit that Jesus performs many signs. They themselves admit that there's no shortage of evidence. It's not that Jesus simply performed the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Certainly an exceptional sign that would require serious thought and consideration. But Jesus performed sign upon sign upon sign. And the raising of Lazarus was simply the cherry on top of a mountain of ice cream and fudge and whipped cream and sprinkles. And it apparently never enters their discussions that Jesus might be the long-awaited descendant of uh, David and as such might be a worthy leader to overthrow the Roman occupation and restore the nation to its former days of glory. No, no. They have long ago decided that Jesus cannot be Messiah and their intractable opinion must not be questioned. This fear of monumental loss that leads to the voicing of this political despair is then seized upon by the chief henchman in this group of about 70 religious leaders. His name is Caiaphas, and he has been serving as high priest for about a dozen years by this point in time. Caiaphas is politically astute enough to know that Rome can be mollified by the nation's if the nation's troubles can be pinned on a single individual. Yes, there is trouble in Judea. Yes, it is awful. But it's not our fault. The trouble does not lie with us. It lies with this man named Jesus. He is the troublemaker. Please work with us. Help us make him go away. Now Caiaphas does not say it like that, but that is the gist of what his argument will be before Pilate. It is the gist of what he says to the council. You don't seem to understand that it is better that one man die for the whole nation rather than the whole nation dying to spare one man. What we need to find here is some of, or what we find here rather, is some of the irony that has long been noted in the gospel according to John. In many places, we find the apostle using this rhetorical and literary device to make a very critical point. For example, the entire conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel back in chapter 3, stands in stark contrast to the conversation between, between Jesus and the unnamed Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. One is a well-known leader of Israel. The other is a nameless woman and a social outcast from Samaria. One comes to Jesus by night. The other meets Jesus in broad daylight. Nicodemus leaves confused and befuddled. The woman experiences clarity and brings her entire village to meet the Messiah. And the irony is that one of them would have been expected to see clearly, but it's the other. That sees and understands. That same irony was on full display a couple of weeks ago in chapter 9. Where the blind man sees and those with twenty-twenty vision declare there's nothing to see here. And now in chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, is plotting with others to put to death the one who is the resurrection and the life. And as he does so, he makes a declaration that in his mind is a political necessity. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. When ironically, this is the very plan of Almighty God and has been since before the foundation of the world. And John sees the irony and he points out that Caiaphas' motivations for saying this are dastardly. But while that is true, it is also true that he is high priest. And he is God's high priest. So God will employ him to serve God's purposes whether Caiaphas wants to or not. And the words that come from his mouth are prophetic beyond Caiaphas's comprehension. It is better that one man should die for the people. Oh, how his words must still ring in his ears even now that he has an entirely different perspective from beyond the grave. In many respects, one of the reasons that the unregenerate will not open their mouths at the final judgment will be because their own words spoken throughout their lives will spring to their minds and they will be convicted by them. They will realize that they had enough evidence to believe that Jesus was the Christ. They will realize that they had enough illumination to rightly conclude that he was God's Messiah, and yet they blatantly and willfully rejected him. And they will realize that there were plenty of opportunities for them to repent and fall on their faces before the Lord of Lords, yet they proudly declared their own version of it is better for one man to die. And that realization will haunt them in the eternal darkness. And John tells us that from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. D.A. Carson makes an important point here, saying that this resolution by the Sanhedrin is settled. They have determined an outcome that has only to be carried out. They're not looking to arrest Jesus so that he may be tried. He is to be tried because he's already been found guilty in their minds. This is mob justice that is determined to have their decision be carried out in the most expedient way. And this resolution by the Sanhedrin was probably not able to be kept secret, particularly with at least two members sympathetic to Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, which is why we see Jesus retreat once again to a remote place beyond the reasonable reach of the authorities. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now, we have spoken before about God's timing in these things, and Jesus is perfectly in tune with the Father's will for him. And it will be imperative that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, die at the feast of Passover, which signified to all of Israel that God spares those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And as John prepares to transition to the next significant portion of his gospel, he does so by speaking of the Passover being at hand and how it was that many went up to Jerusalem ahead of the feast to engage in the necessary cleansing rites so they might fully participate in the feast. And again, how ironic that their own efforts to purify themselves will end with the most perfect man who ever lived being defiled in the most ghastly ways so that they might be truly cleansed by his shed blood. These early pilgrims wondered, considering the bounty that was on Jesus' head, whether he would stay home and just skip the feast. But had they known of God's unfolding plan, they would have known that Jesus would not have missed this feast for all the world. Because he was once offered all the kingdoms of the world to avoid the cross of Calvary, which he will occupy at the end of this feast. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that I have never been involved in a plot to commit murder. I must confess to you now that is not true. And that may be unsettling, an unsettling revelation to you, but perhaps not as unsettling as this one. You also have been involved in a plot to commit murder. You see, we were co-conspirators in the death of Christ. The genesis of this plot began in the garden when Adam exercised his free will and rebelled against his Creator and defied God's authority and we were there. It was in that moment that the need for Christ to die became necessary if we were going to escape the eternality of God's judgment of death. You see, the words of Caiaphas are our words. The world that he does not want to see turned right side up is the world that we've all had a hand in creating. It's a world that is plagued with sin because we are in it making sinful decisions each and every day. The resistance to God's reign and authority that Caiaphas displays is no different than my own or your own. The fact of the matter is that Jesus had to die. Not to keep the world from changing, but to keep the world from going to hell. And this is why the atoning death of Christ is so central to the gospel. The gospel is not the gospel. If Jesus' death is simply the unfortunate end to a life well lived and you should seek to emulate his life, The gospel is not the gospel if Jesus' death is reduced to a political assassination between religious factions who even this morning are still warring over the same piece of real estate. The gospel is not the gospel if Jesus' death is turned into an example of what a true pacifist would do. The gospel is the gospel when the death of Jesus is revealed for what it truly is. A work of atonement that satisfies the perfect justice of Almighty God and turns His wrath away when the shed blood of Christ covers those who turn to Him in faith. And beloved, it is only when we understand our culpability in Jesus' death that we begin to understand the depth of God's love for sinners, the breadth of His grace towards us, the width of His mercy, and the absolute necessity of Jesus dying the way He did. Friends, if you have not yet laid hold of the merits of His wonderful life and death and resurrection by faith alone in Him, then I invite you to turn to Him now in genuine repentance and surrender yourself to His authority. Let me invite you to pray with me.